are listening to all of it from WNYC. I'm Allison Stewart. The latest novel from Pulitzer Prize winning writer Michael Cunningham takes place on April 5th, 2019, April 5th, 2020, and April 5th, 2021. Fittingly, the novel is titled Day. The story centers around a family living together in a Brooklyn brownstone. There's Isabel, a photo editor who's feeling ennui in her marriage to Dan, a musician turned stay-at-home dad who wants to get back into songwriting. When we meet them in April 2019, both Dan and Isabel seem to have an easier time talking to and loving Isabel's brother Robbie than they do each other. Robbie lives in the apartment upstairs and is still recovering from a bad breakup. He's a sixth grade history teacher whose work includes reading pre-teen hot takes on Columbus. In his young life, he seemed destined for medical school. As an escape from his current life, Robbie creates a fake online persona named Wolf, a doctor, who has a decent following. Robbie slash Wolf posts new photos to Instagram multiple times a day. Also in the house are Dan and Isabel's two kids, Nathan, who's an angsty tween, and Violet, a perceptive and slightly anxious little kid. The family dynamic, already complicated in 2019, starts to fully unravel in 2020, and in 2021, the family struggles to deal with a massive loss and put themselves back together in the aftermath of their year of staying at home. Day was our January Get Lit with All of It book club selection, and we were thrilled to be joined by Michael for a sold-out crowd at the Stavros Niarcos Foundation Library last week. I began my conversation with Michael Cunningham by asking him what was helpful about writing a novel set over three days over a period of three years, and what was difficult about it. I was at least halfway through another novel when the pandemic struck. And I didn't see how I, anyway, could write a contemporary novel that did not involve the pandemic. I mean, you know, there's no place in the world mm-hmm. to set mm-hmm. a novel that was not profoundly like, knocked out by the pandemic. And the book I was working on, um, it doesn't... If I Let's just say that if I had tried to introduce the pandemic it would have felt like i was introducing the pandemic like like mm-hmm. here we are at this slightly awkward party oh godzilla where did that come you know <laughs> who expected a 50-foot fire-breathing lizard mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. so i put that one aside and started this one which um got me right into the middle of the question how do you write a, a novel about human beings. Novels are inherently about human beings. Um, And deal with the pandemic without writing a novel about the pandemic. So, mourning is before the the year before the Mm -hmm. pandemic. Afternoon is at the height of the pandemic. And evening is whatever we're in now. <laughs> Where, you know, it's not the post-pandemic, but neither am I wondering if I really watched those bananas well enough. Mm-hmm. My brother, you know. So, yeah, yeah, that just, I, I, I almost think of it as the pandemic is a sort of brick with a hole running through the middle, and the story is a thread yeah. that goes through the brick and comes out the other side. 
So we have this nuclear family at the center, Dan, Isabel, their kids Nathan and Violet, and then there's all these satellites attached, Dan's brother Garth, his complicated relationship with his reluctant co-parent, Chess, mm-hmm. Maybe, yeah, and their baby Odin, yeah. Isabel's brother Robbie, Robbie's alter ego that he writes on Instagram. Who came to you first? Mm. That is a good question. Um, you know, I think it was really the, the these two married people. Um, names are Isabel and Dan. And um, how to put this? It's one of those marriages that isn't going quite badly enough to mm-hmm. abandon and not quite well enough to be good. This is a difficult marriage to dramatize. Mm. obviously. But I just, it's one of those things that I see in our lives so much more often than I see it in our literature. Um, So that was really where it began. These two people who are, you know, the characters are always pretty vivid to me right at the start, and here they are. um, Two kids kind of locked in this it's okay, it could be better, it could be worse, and then and then comes the 50-foot-tall, fire-breathing mm-hmm. lizard, and what happens then? How did you decide their professions? How did you decide Dan would be a almost-made-it musician and Isabel would be working in this industry, which is on the ropes? Journalist. No. Yeah, she's a journalist. Uh, <laughs> well, she works for a magazine. Um, you know, all I can say is I, I only, I, you know, work is important. Mm-hmm. I, I, I sometimes feel that some novels sort of pay too little attention to the work we do as if, you know, like on old sitcoms when our entire lives were at home and then we just vanished for eight hours and did something and then came home again. And that's just not mm-hmm. my experience of my life. Um, the only thing I, I, so I do account for what my characters do for mm-hmm. a living and the own my only sort of principle is it has to be something i could imagine doing mm-hmm. you know um blessings on every single person who is a corporate attorney <laughs> in finance um but those are not things that i could I, that i mm-hmm. would do so i just i kind of um and you know i really wanted to be a musician i would so much rather be josh ritter <laughs> 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 Do you play an instrument? You know, I I play the piano atrociously, um, but but mm. you know enough to satisfy myself. I would never ever play for anyone else. Everyone seems to love having Robbie in the house, Isabel's brother. Yet, yeah. she asks him to move out of of the brownstone. What story is she telling herself about? why Robbie's got to go. Well, the story she's telling herself is the sort of surface story. Yeah, um, so it's Isabel and Dan on one floor of a brownstone that Isabel and Dan have bought. And Robbie lives in the sort of little apartment upstairs. And Isabel has to ask him to leave because they have these two kids. It's only two bedrooms. You know, you can't. How are you, how are you going to tell a contemporary New York story that does not involve real estate? Real estate. <laughs> um, but you know, you also think beneath the surface of things, and um, I don't, I'm not quite sure how to put this. Um, Robbie, uh, sorry, Isabel and Dan are both sort of 
in love with Robbie. Mm-hmm. Um, for Dan, it's a bromance. He's not secretly mm-hmm. gay, but and for you know Isabel, the incest is really just not going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, but for each of them, in their own way, he is the sort of ideal mate. In part because he's there, but unattainable. And you know what? What she really feels terrible about, though she can't quite acknowledge it, is it's time for Robbie to get out of their lives. Mm-hmm. So they can be free of this kind of attachment that is, on one hand, nourishing, and on the other hand, just holding the prisoner. Robbie winds up in Iceland, uh, and we asked our book club readers online if they'd ever been to Iceland, mm. and several had. Mm-hmm. And someone texted to us, DM to us, stayed Valentine's weekend years ago, winter day short, beautiful and fun. Yeah. Someone else wrote, it was extraordinary, rough and beautiful, lived in wild, at the same time, at the same time, sophisticated. Why did you choose Iceland to send um, Robbie to? I I have been to Iceland, like like just like those two people who wrote in, and um, it is the most unearthly place on earth I've ever been. Um, you know, it's volcanic. The the the, mm-hmm. the the earth is black, but with these little thermal pools, the color of of swimming pools at midnight and then then there are these sort of grassy mountains with waterfalls that are coming down from the glacier on top of them as long as the glacier lasts and um i just wanted robbie to go there it felt like a sort of almost a halfway point between the earth and and some other Mm -hmm. realm Let's go. We should all just go to Iceland. Can we just okay. have like a group trip? <laughs> group, group trip. Can the library arrange that? So Robbie is is always posting on Instagram this fake account, this fellow wolf, uh, and he's you know takes pictures and he doesn't really pay too much attention to whether it's the right time of year when he's posting. And he, interestingly, as he points out, nobody seems to notice or right. care. People right, are just right, more invested right. in wolf. <laughs> Um, why is Robbie so invested in Wolf? Um, you know, Robbie has been sort of looking for love in all the wrong places. Mm-hmm. Um, I understand about that. Um, <laughs> though I've been married for a long time. Anyway, not, but, <laughs> but, <laughs> enough, about, enough about me. Um, um, I love Instagram. I don't really like any of the others, but I just love it that you can tune into the lives of an infinite number of other of other people. And if you follow somebody long enough, you can begin to see the discrepancies between how they present on Instagram and what you imagine their lot. You know, this is a kind of novelist, slightly crazy thing to do. But <laughs> but I, I, I love being able to sort of mm-hmm. suss out, you know, people who live mm-hmm. thousands of miles away who I'll, mm-hmm. never, I'll never meet. And um, Robbie, after his most recent romantic disappointment Mm -hmm. um, creates an avatar on Instagram and a non-existent person with photographs borrowed from other sources. But um, what's interesting to me about what Robbie is doing is he's not creating some kind of superhero. What he, uh, this 
person, this non-person person who he has invented, he's named Wolf, is is what Robbie thinks of as a slightly better version of himself. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. a little more successful, a little more assured. Um, it's sort of him with the volume turned up just a little and the lights turned on a little brighter. And he finds comfort in feeling this sort of companionship with what he imagines to be his improved self. Let's talk about his sister, his, his sister Isabel, who seems sad. One of the first scenes we have of her is crying on the subway. Yeah. Why is she crying in that moment? Um, you know, somebody, I forget who, um, once said of Isabel, hey, She's got money, she's got a job, she's got a man who loves her, she's got two children. What's the problem? And all I could think to say was, you know, when social or whatever medical science determined that having those things equaled happiness, I I just didn't read about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know it's a little, you know, it's it's it it's slightly shaky territory. I admit but i feel like for isabel the question is yeah it looks great it's not working for you Mm -hmm. so you get to be not only unhappy about your life but unhappy about being unhappy about your life yeah not that she's not a fun kind of girl (laughs) we asked people in our book club have they cried in the subway many had uh someone said yes when my best friend and roommate and i had a breakup yeah. Who here has cried in the subway? <gasps> Show of hands. Oh, look. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my sisters and brothers. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's, it's interesting when you see somebody crying in the subway. You don't know whether to go help them or let them cry in peace. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Oh, no, I do. I do. And and um, also, this is something that, that Isabel's thinking, thinking of in, in that scene. Um, is this person all right in every sense, including, like, is this somebody kind of dangerous? What is Isabel's take on motherhood? Um, You know, that is actually a big part of what is making her so unhappy. She would be so horrified to admit this. But... um, and this is so forbidden. But she does. She's fine that she, she, you know, she loves. She does love her children, but she doesn't really want to be a mother. She doesn't want to be that person, you know. She doesn't want to be the one who who always has to be there whenever the child needs anything. She does it, but not as willingly as she would as she would like to. Or organically. Or, or organically is 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 exactly the right the right word for it. Yeah. I do love Violet. I do love her oh, daughter good. Violet. Do- the Violet girl, yeah. is special. She's she's special, special. Like she might, she has visions, and yeah, she right. might see dead people and things. Mm-hmm. Um, does she actually have supernatural abilities? You know, I sort of leave that open. Okay. Um, I think she actually does. 
Me too. Um, but I, I, but I find with forays into the supernatural, which I kind of believe in. Um, I, I don't, I, I don't want anyone who might read something of mine to feel like if you, if you don't believe in ghosts and extrasensory perception or all those things. This book is not for you know. I, mm-hmm. I I I I want I want to leave room for the people who are skeptical about it. Dan had sort of a rock star youth, partied kind of hard, went to rehab, got sober. He seems to really like being a dad. Oh, he does. No, he very Dan he, digs being a dad. He very much does, and you know one of the complications is that he and Robbie are kind of raising the children together. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. it's a big bromance. That I thought that that they were the two people in the book. I was pretty sure were the two that loved each other the most. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. The yeah, brother and brother-in-law. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, I am. Well, I'm interested in, I guess, almost everything, but but certainly in bonds between men mm-hmm. that are not essentially romantic or erotic, but are hugely powerful and that's these guys it's interesting that dan is the one person who lower t thrives during the pandemic he really kind of rediscovers himself he he connects with his music again what does he he learn about himself during the 2020 portion of the book um He learns that he wants to give it a go. That he isn't done as a musician. Um, his sort of early retire. He wants to take back his early retirement. And um, you know, I think this is true of anybody who, certainly anybody who does does anything creative, and probably anybody who does anything you have to decide you have to do it in the face of all reasonable objections you have to maintain a certain romantic relationship to reality and that's what dan finds during that year chess and garth have this unusual parenting situation garth agreed to be the sperm donor for chess and then once odin shows up He's really excited about Odin. He's like, it just sort of awakens something in Garth, yet Chess is really reluctant to let Garth in, in their orbit. Uh, why is she so reluctant to let this man be a father? Um, the degree of involvement that he rather suddenly wants once the child mm-hmm. is there was not the deal. That was not their agreement. Their agreement was that she would raise the child and he would, the child would know him, but, you know, he finds that he wants to be more in the kid's Mm -hmm. life than that and she doesn't want that. And yet it's hard for her to tell him, you know, well... It's not that hard for her to tell him to get out of here, but then, but then when he refuses to go away, it gets mm-hmm. complicated. He seems to evolve quite oh, yeah. nicely over the book. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. At first, I was like, "Oh, I know this guy. Yeah, I know Garth. We've all known Garth." Um, but then by the end, I was like, "Oh, let, 
Garth wants to try. We should, we should, and he seems earnest and really wants to try, not like he feels like he has to try. Yeah, I, I, I think if fiction writers have any kind of duty, we don't, we don't have many duties, mm-hmm. but I, or obligation, whatever you want to call it, is to look at people, very much including people who you think, oh, I know that guy, mm-hmm. I know that, I know that woman, and and sort of show ourselves and then readers that no you don't mm-hmm. we don't we don't know that person they just they just signify in certain ways you know it's always it's it, it's what's sort of irritating about writers because we're always essentially saying no it's more complicated than that whatever it is <laughs> it's more complicated than that you are listening to my conversation with Pulitzer Prize winning author Michael Cunningham at our January Get Lit with All of It book club event we spent the month reading his novel Day We'll have more with Michael and some questions from our sold-out crowd after a quick break. You are listening to All of It on WNYC. I'm Allison Stewart. We continue my conversation with Michael Cunningham, Pulitzer Prize winner and author of the novel Day, which was our January Get Lit with All of It book club selection. Thanks to our partners at the New York Public Library, 3,787 of you were able to check out an e-copy and read along with us this month. And, as usual, our sold-out crowd at the Stavros Niarchos Foundation Library had lots of great questions. We'll get to some of those in a moment. But first, here's more of my conversation with Michael Cunningham. Where do you go to observe people? Here? Here. <laughs> these, these characters feel like people that you've seen. Like that yeah. You have, you have noted, oh, I see the way that gentleman walks. I see the way that woman, that look in that woman's eye. Right, right, right. Yeah. Where, yeah. Do you, where do you go to well, look at people? I have a studio like a block down from Washington Square Park. Ah. Oh. Genius. Which you know, it's sort of like this Blade Runner cafe, Jardin uh, de Luxembourg. It's like like half the people in the world seem mm-hmm. to be there. But you know, I I decided pretty early on that I would just go about my business, and you know, I see people all the time. We all see people all the time, mm-hmm. but but not not to be looking at anyone or anything in terms of what I can sort of pick up and, and use. It, mm-hmm. it, 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 it felt, it, it pretty quickly felt like the wrong lens through which to be looking at people mm-hmm. and, and the world. So, I mean, I think I'm like most people, I, I, I see what I see. Mm-hmm. We all see what we see. And the big difference is then I go home and try to write about it. <laughs> It's the thing I thought of, uh, when I think about this book and about one of the major themes is this idea of change coming whether you like it or not. Yeah. Whether Isabel's dealing with this dying magazine industry is going to change. Her boss doesn't seem to understand that. Chess is dealing with the changing values of her students and the courses and what she teaches and, and what they'll accept. Nathan's dealing with um, his sort of changing social status from year to year with his friends. Is he on the inside or is he on the outside this year? What did you want to explore about the way we react to change? And of course, the pandemic. Huge, unexpected change. That was a, I know that was a, that was a big one. That was a whopper. <laughs> that, was a, that was a whopper. Um, you know, I, I, I think a story, any story is sort of inherently, inevitably about 
the passage of time and its effects. You could sort mm-hmm. of give any novel or short story to anyone and say, I hope you like this. It's about the passage of time. Um, so, yeah, and then you just try to look at how how we evolve or devolve or how we become somebody who we were not quite when the story started. There are parts of New York that we will all recognize and behaviors that we'll all recognize. What did you want to capture about life in New York City, especially in those early months of the pandemic? Um, you know, really, I just, I just want to try to get it down because I've lived here for a long mm-hmm. time. And um, you know, I, I, I think one of the sort of less discussed purposes of fiction writers is um, we're kind of witnesses. We're sort of part of the historic, the, the really, I don't necessarily include myself, but the really mm-hmm. good ones are part of the historical record. Like if you want to know about 19th century Russia, histories, biographies, but also Chekhov and Tolstoy and Dostoevsky. Um, so there's that, and there's also... <sighs> okay, take Napoleon's invasion of Moscow, which was a really bad idea. Um, <clears throat> and on uh, during the retreat across the Russian steppes, um, hundreds of thousands of French soldiers died of starvation mm. and exposure. And historians and biographers, bless them, record the battles and Napoleon and his generals, but without the fiction writer to think about this and imagine this, that soldier who dies in the snow outside of Moscow, still thinking, I'm going to make it, I'll get home, that soldier is lost to history mm-hmm. without somebody speaking for him. For him, they were all men. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where I think Tolstoy comes in. Mm-hmm. Let's take some questions from, from the audience. Hi, every. Really enjoyed your book. Uh, can you talk Thank about you. getting Julianne Moore to read it? Because that was a part that I really enjoyed a lot. It wasn't that great. I know Julianne Moore did so the audio book. Um, you know, I, I I know her slightly because she was in the film version of The Hours. Um, but it was her idea. Um, I I just wouldn't have asked her. It would have felt. <laughs> presumptuous hey 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 can you do me a favor um <laughs> no she she was interested in doing an audio and reading a book for for audio and and you know it seems that every about every 25 years she and i work together on something <laughs> but yeah it's beautiful isn't it she did an amazing job which character i listened to it last weekend uh-huh. uh whose voice did she get that that it sounded you're like oh i didn't really qu- she provided a nuance to a character. Oh, you know, I'm going to like like all of them. That's part of what is so great about having somebody mm. as good as Julianne um, read the, read the dialogue of the characters you've written. It always it 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 sounds very right and not what you were thinking 
and not wrong, but just yeah. oh yeah, right. There's just I mean you you. It's always good to be reminded that no two people read the same book. Mm. Um, I was curious if you could speak a little bit to the the difference between a nuclear family and a communal family. It seems like a lot of our society pushes us towards this uh, nuclear family, family, and they already had such a communal environment, yet at the same time we're working so hard to be separate. And mm -hmm. I wanted to hear your words on that juxtaposition. Yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, uh, every now people will sometimes talk about how I tend to write about sort of non-traditional families, non-nuclear families, and I, I, I'm, I'm not sure if what I think we mean by a traditional family, which is a, a, a man and a woman and their biological children, is necessarily the traditional family anymore. I mean, when you look at who families are, all honor to that family, but there are there are so many other whether 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 it's a it's it's a single parent raising children or a group of people raising to or not raising children, um, and I just love all the variations we collectively are working on on the very notion of family and 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 who and what a family categorically contains. Okay, all the way in the back. The evolution of your thinking in uh, making Robbie a um, would-be medical student and then a sixth grade teacher. Um, I can understand you're not making him a corporate lawyer or a uh, corporate person, but um, what was your um, reasoning, thinking, evolution of your thinking in uh, that with that character? Well, oh, I was pre-med for about 45 minutes. Um, <laughs> Because I just thought I would be really good at talking to patients. I didn't really have any ability. But um, <clears throat> but being a doctor is something I can I can very much imagine. And um, the sort of I don't know semi submerged conflict there is um, Robbie's father so wanted him to be a doctor that he thought, you know what? I got into medical school and I'm not gonna go. I'm gonna I'm gonna mm -hmm. do something that feels at least as important to me and is not what you want. Not that I think it's a good idea to live our lives in opposition to our fathers. But that is partly what, what moved Robbie into being a sixth grade teacher. I wouldn't want the ev my part of the evening to end without saying, um, maybe we all know this, it just means so much to me to get to actually see and talk to the people who read the books. You know, it's such an abstract act otherwise. It's like putting a message in a bottle and throwing it into the ocean and hoping it washes up somewhere. And it really matters to just see people and, and be reminded that, you know, you don't have to like every book or any of the books, but you know you're there for. And um, thank you, thank you for being readers. Thank you for being here. And thank you, Michael. Thank you. 
That was my conversation with Pulitzer Prize winning author Michael Cunningham from our January Get Lit with All of It book club event. We spent the month reading his novel, Day. 